Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. On April 19, 1995, in the city of Pittsburgh, an unmasked, completely undisguised man named MacArthur Wheeler walked into a bank in broad daylight, brandishing a gun, pointed it at bank tellers and demanded money. After he left that bank, after he left that bank, Mr. Wheeler proceeded to another bank and did the same thing. Of course, security video surveillance caught everything on camera. The police in Pittsburgh put up Mr. Wheeler's picture on local TV news later that evening, received tips immediately, leading them straight to his door. Mr. Wheeler was dumbfounded, both by being identified and then being arrested so swiftly. When police interrogated him later, they found out why he was so bewildered by his quick arrest. He said to the police, but I wore the juice. Evidently, Wheeler told the police that he'd rubbed his face with lemon juice to make it invisible to security cameras. In response to this statement, he was checked for drug or alcohol intoxication, both of which were negative. Upon further inquiry, the investigators reached the conclusion that Wheeler was not crazy, but just incredibly wrong. MacArthur Wheeler based his idea that lemon juice could be used as an invisible ink. And he incorrectly assumed that the juice could make his face invisible to security cameras. He claimed that he tested this out by putting the juice on his face and taking a self-picture. He said there was no face on the picture, so he decided to pay a little visit to a couple of local banks. Later on, Wheeler told people that the lemon juice had actually made the robberies more difficult as it, the juice stung his eyes and he was unable to see during the crimes. <laughs> what a picture. An unmasked robber saying, don't stick with me, this is a mess up. I mean, think about that. Wheeler went to jail, and his badly misinformed story went public. A few years later, in 1999, the remarkable tale of MacArthur Wheeler inspired two researchers from Cornell University named David Dunning and Justin Kruger to discover something now called the Dunning-Kruger effect. This graph shows their theory. Now, I want you to pay attention because this explains a lot of what's happened in the last two years, in my opinion. They found that those people who know little to nothing about a subject can be completely confident in their expertise of the subject. They also found that the more people knew about an actual subject, the less confident they became up to a certain point, and then they regained some of their confidence. So... Less knowledge can lead to more confidence, while more knowledge can lead to less confidence, at least at first. I'm sure we've all met people who think they know it all, but actually know very little. Of course, this does not apply to you or me. I'm talking about us right here, okay? <laughs> but we all know someone who's often wrong, but never in doubt. And we've also probably met people who know a great deal, but they're incredibly humble. The book of Proverbs, we've encountered several types of people who think they know more than they actually do. So this is the last Sunday in our Daily Wisdom Book of Proverbs Challenge. Let's review some of these characters that we've met. First of all, there's the mocker. 
How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? The mocker wears a perpetual sneer. His talent for cutting insults and sarcastic remarks look like intellectual sophistication, but behind the mask of witticisms is vastly inflated confidence in his own opinion and intelligence. That's why proud mockers are almost always contrasted with the humble in the book of Proverbs. The simple. The simple believe anything. The simple have a a gullibility about them. They're too easily led and influenced. They're often over-impressed by the spectacular and the dramatic. Or they need others' approval too much. And they can be taken in by forceful personalities who pretend to give it to them. The obstinate, a fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. The most common word for fool in the book of Proverbs is the Hebrew word that means obstinate. The main mark of the obstinate is they're opinionated, wise in their own eyes, smarter than you approach to living, that makes them unable to learn from anyone else or accept correction. Then there's a troublemaker, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth. He always stirs up conflict. The mark of a troublemaker is they're in constant conflict with others. They are the opposite of the peacemakers Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. The peacemaker builds bridges. The troublemaker burns bridges. The peacemaker gives careful, gracious answers seeking to disarm and diffuse tensions. The troublemaker recklessly slanders others and stirs up turmoil. And then we've read about the sluggard. The craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. A sluggard is a person who is habitually lazy or perpetually passive. Such a person does not take personal responsibility for his or her own life. The sluggard makes constant excuses about why they can't, shouldn't, don't, and aren't. The word sluggard, by the way, is used 14 times in the book of Proverbs. And in each case, the writer condemns laziness and warns of the negative consequences of being a sluggard. But we've also read about the ways of wisdom in this wonderful book of Proverbs and how applying wisdom to our lives makes us a part of this very noble group simply called the wise. The wise in heart are called discerning. And gracious words promote instruction. The wise are those who have the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. The wise can make the right choice even when there are no clear moral laws telling you explicitly what to do. The wise are marked by discipline, discernment, and discretion. So here's my question. What kind of person are you a mocker, simple, obstinate, troublemaker, sluggard, or wise? Or maybe a better question to ask is not what kind of person you are, but what kind of person do you want to become? Well, if you want to become a humble, wise learner, I've got good news for you today. Proverbs 30 can help us. Almost all the book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon of Israel, but other wisdom writings from different authors is included in the book, one of which is named Agur, son of Jaka. Now, some translations spell his name A-G-A-R, Agar. Uh, I'm using New International, and it uses Agur, the son of Jaka, but either pronunciation is acceptable. Most scholars believe that Agur lived in the same era as Solomon, But we actually don't know much about him. 
except what we can glean from this one chapter, Proverbs chapter 30. This is the only time Agar is mentioned in any of the biblical books. The name Agar or Agar comes from a Hebrew word meaning collector. And true to his name, he presents us with an unusual, some might even say weird, collection of sayings that are, in the famous words of Winston Churchill, when he tried to describe Russia, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And yet there is a theme that runs throughout this chapter that urges us to be a humble learner. I'm going to talk to you about that today. So what does it mean to be a humble learner? According to Agar... It means at least four things. A sober view of self, an exalted view of God, a trustworthy view of Scripture, and a prayerful voice of contentment. A sober view of self, an exalted view of God, a trustworthy view of Scripture, and a prayerful voice of contentment. That will make us humble, lifelong learners. Let's take a look at each of these. First of all, a sober view of self. Proverbs chapter 30. Verses 1 through 3 says the sayings of Agur, son of Jaca, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ithiel, I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I'm only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Agur begins his writing with words of profound Humility, which is a trademark of wisdom if you've been paying attention in the book of Proverbs. He says he's a nobody, but he's really a somebody. He's a nobody because this is the only place in the Bible his name and his father's name are mentioned. But even though he's a nobody, he's a somebody because he's a prophet and he speaks an oracle. And that's what the word utterance means. He can speak things God has put in him to speak. But that does not inflate his ego. Rather, the more he knows God the more he realizes how much he doesn't know. And so he calls himself a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. You see, it's the holiness of God that forms Agur's very sober, realistic view of himself, which is consistent with others in Scripture who get even the tiniest glimpse of the holiness of God. This is the opposite of how so many of us live. I encourage you to take some time and watch a a brief five-minute video that explains a little more in detail about the Dunning-Kruger effect that we talked about earlier. The video is entitled this, Why Incompetent People Think They're Amazing. (laughs) Now, I started to show you just a little clip of this, but I figured we don't have that kind of time, and... uh, the video, seriously, look that up. You can find it on, the, on YouTube, Why Incompetent People Think They're Amazing. The video explains why people think they know more or perform better than they actually are. They say there is a double curse that we have. First, we make mistakes. We reach poor decisions. But secondly, they, those same knowledge gaps prevent us from catching our errors. Listen, in other words, we lack the needed expertise to recognize how badly we're doing. This explains so many of those train wreck tryouts on American Idol and America's Got Talent, right? They don't know. In the group, if somebody's singing, if somebody's operating a little off kilter, if everybody in the group is singing but one person's singing off key, 
If one person has an irritating mannerism, if somebody talks too much or is a notorious name dropper, if somebody gets too close to you and violates your physical space, or if somebody's emotionally needy and other people cringe when they see that person coming because they know that person's going to suck the life out of them. If somebody has a problem, who's the last person to know? It's the somebody who has the problem. In other words, the truth about you is you don't know what the truth about you is. The writers of Scripture understand this human propensity to perpetually self-promote without any proper basis to do so. So they tell us things like this. Put no confidence in the flesh. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The more wise you become, the more you realize the truth about you is you don't know what the truth about you is, and the truth about me is that only God knows the truth about me. And that's why a humble, lifelong learner not only has a sober view of themselves, they have an exalted view of God. Wisdom requires we grasp not only how small and inadequate we are, but how big God is. Agur is amazed by two things about God, God's creative power and God's ultimate plan. God's creative power and God's ultimate plan. Look at verse 4. Who's gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who's wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know. You know, this section reminds me of the interaction between God and Job. In Job chapter 38, if you've ever read the story of Job, then you know Job's the poster child for pain and suffering in the Bible. And the book of Job is really just a collection of Job's and those around him responses to that pain. And Job contends this. He says, I'm suffering without cause. His friends try to convince him no one suffers without cause. And most of the book is a back and forth debate between Job and his friends about which one is right. And Job gets so worked up at one point, he defiantly declares this. He said, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. You know what Job's saying here? Job is saying, I wish I could take God to court. I wish I could sue God. I wish there was a court somewhere where you could sue God for malpractice, negligence, and wrongful death. If only God would show up and we would just square off mano a deo. Some of you got that, but some of you didn't. It's okay. It's okay. We'll go on. Ask somebody around you. They'll explain to you. Well, chapter 38, Job gets his wish. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And God shows up and he essentially says, okay, Job, you want a piece of me? You want to put me on trial? You got some questions for me? I'm right here, but I got some questions for you first. God kind of sounds like he's from New Jersey, right? <laughs> you want a piece of me? You got some questions for me? Well, let me ask you a few questions first. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Get ready to defend yourself. I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Uh-oh, it's about to go down. 
And suddenly Job and his overly chatty friends get real quiet as God begins to ask the questions. And he asks questions like this. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And just verse after verse, questions like that. More questions like that. But what you'll notice as you read through Job, and I hope you do read it, is that when God appears, he never seems to get around to answering any of Job's questions of why. He never does. He could have. There was an explanation we read about it in chapter 1. God could have told him. He chooses not to. Instead, in the last section of the book, God just, God just asked Job a bunch of questions that he obviously can't answer and that nobody can answer. Why does God do this? Is he just trying to show that he's smarter than Job? Is he getting tired of all of Job's whining? I don't think so. God is pointing out that Job has a finite mind and a limited point of view on the events of life. God is a sovereign creator, and he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Heard about a small boy that was watching a parade pass through his city, right down his street. He'd never seen one before. The only problem was he stood on the wrong side of a six-foot wooden fence. He can only see the parade through a hole in the fence, which meant he only saw what was directly in front of him at any given time. So when the lions came by, it was scary. And when the clowns came by, it was funny. And when the band came by, it was exciting. But then something happened that gave him a new perspective. His father walked up, hoisted the boy up on his shoulders above the fence, and suddenly he had a panoramic view of the parade. And then it all made sense. Then he understood what the parade was about. You see, God, our heavenly Father, always sees the big picture. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, and he never wrings his hand in the middle of a crisis and says, I wonder how this is going to turn out. There is no question that can, that can confound him. There's no dilemma that can confuse him. There's no event that can surprise him. He has eternal, intrinsic, comprehensive absolute, perfect knowledge. Nothing is ever news to God. God never says, no kidding. He never says, really? I didn't know that. And unlike anyone else, God's knowledge is not limited to time. He sees our future just as clearly as he sees our past, meaning where and who we will be 10 years from now is no less certain to God than who and where we were 10 years ago. That's an incredible panoramic view of life. Humble learners understand this. Therefore, they have a sober, realistic view of themselves. They have a high, exalted view of God. And because of this, humble learners also have a trustworthy view of Scripture. In other words, a humble learner trusts what God says. Listen to how Agor describes God's Word in verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will rebuke you. And prove you a liar. Agur shows his high view of God by having a high view of the Hebrew Scriptures or what we call the Old Testament today. He says those words are flawless. Other translations interpret that phrase like this. Every word of God proves pure or true. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is tested. It simply means you can rely on what it says. You can totally trust it. We can trust every, uh, listen, 
Let me say just the opposite of that. We can't trust everything we read on the internet. Except what you post, of course, right? (laughs) We can't trust everything we hear from our professors. We certainly can't trust all the so-called facts given out by our politicians. We can't even trust the fact checkers who check the facts the politicians give us. Statistics can be manipulated. Photographs can be faked. Magazine covers can be airbrushed. Our teachers, our friends, our science, our studies, even our eyes can deceive us. But the word of God is entirely and always true. You can bet your life on them. If you ever think to yourself, I need to know what's true. What's true about me? What's true about people? What's true about the world? What's true about the future? What's true about the past? What's true about what it means to have a good life? What's true about God? then come to God's word because every word of God is flawless, it's tested, it's pure, it's true, and it will accomplish the purpose it was sent for, namely to lead us back home to God by following Jesus. Somebody once asked G.K. Chesterton, a brilliant Christian writer from a century ago, they said, Dr. Chesterton, if you were marooned on a desert island and you could have only one book with you, what would it be? Well, Chesterton was a famous theologian Everyone assumed that his answer would be the Bible. But Chesterton said, if I, were mar- if I were marooned on a desert island and I could only have one book, he said, I would want Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. <laughs> you see, if you find yourself trapped in a desperate situation, you don't want a book that will just entertain you or even educate you. You want to find out, how can I get back home? How can I be saved? That's why we have the scriptures. An early Christian leader named Paul wrote this about the scriptures. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There was a man in the southern African country of Zimbabwe named Gambarambi. Gambarambi would sit by the side of the road smoking his handmade cigarettes using newspaper and tobacco. There was a Bible translator who was translating the New Testament into Gambarambi's native language. And he really wanted, he really wanted Gambarambi to have a New Testament. When he told Gambarambi this, Gambarambi told him that he'll just tear the pages out of the book and use them for cigarettes. Well, the translator was uh, in quite of a quandary. He, quandary. Did I say quandary? Quandary. He was confused, okay? <laughs> Just as my speech is right now. He didn't like the idea of the New Testament being used for cigarette paper. And he prayed about it, and he came up with this arrangement for Gambarambi. He told Gambarambi, So I'm going to give you a New Testament. And you can use the pages for cigarette paper. But first, you have to read the pages first. Well, Gambarambi, seeing a good source of cigarette paper, agreed. Fifteen years later, a United Bible Society meeting in Zimbabwe, one of the keynote speakers was none other than Gambarambi. And he looked out over the audience and he spotted the translator he'd made that agreement with 15 years earlier. And Gambarambi told the audience of that agreement he made. And here's what he said. This may be some of my favorite statement ever. He said, I smoke Matthew. I smoke Mark. I smoke Luke. 
And I smoked John until I got to John 3.16 and I could smoke no more. And you know what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Gamba Rambi went from smoking the gospel to surrendering to the gospel to sharing the gospel. Friends, there has never been a book like the Bible. Every time you read it, you need to remind yourself that you're reading not only the most famous and best-selling book of all time, but one that has extraordinary power to change lives, to change communities, and to change the world. It's done it before, and it can do it again. Humble, lifelong learner has a sober view of self, an exalted view of God, a trustworthy view of Scripture, and finally, a prayerful voice of contentment. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9 This is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. Now, you Bible scholars, you should note that. There's only one prayer in all the book of Proverbs, and this is it. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Several years ago, a book came out titled The Prayer of Jabez. It, too, was based on an obscure, seldom-mentioned character in the Bible named Jabez. And both the prayer and the book are based on Jabez boldly asking God for great blessings for himself, and God answered. The book was a bestseller because it feeds an image of God that most of us desire. And what's that image? We want all the blessings with none of the stressings. We want all the blessings with none of the stressings. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, this is the prayer of Jabez, in case you never read it. it. Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Well, who wouldn't want that, right? Heck yeah, sign me up for that. All the blessings. None of the stressings. I taught on that passage a few times myself years ago. But over time, I've come to think that a better and more authentic prayer to study and emulate is the prayer of Agur. Maybe I'll write a book called The Prayer of Agur. I don't know if it'll sell like the prayer of Jabez, but I think somebody needs to make the case for the prayer of Agur. You see, while Jabez prayed for increased resources and a pain-free life, Agur prayed for something very different, but equally as powerful. Agur connected two fascinating ideas together in prayer that we almost never see. He asked God to keep him from deceiving himself about the nature and the need of wealth. Now, read that one more time. He asked God to keep him from deceiving himself about the nature and the need of wealth. Agur recognized the deceitful nature of riches. One of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is about money, how much we think we need, how secure it will make us feel, how smart we think we are when we have a lot of it, how insecure we feel when we never seem to have enough of it. According to a study from creditcards.com, approximately 15 million people in our country hide a credit card or bank account from a significant other. Why would someone lie to someone else about money? It's because you've lied to yourself about money. And the biggest lie we tell ourselves about money is how much control it makes us think we have. 
The power of wealth blinds us to its ability to first distract us and then to totally dominate us. Wealth has the power to absorb your time, your energy, your imagination, and have too little left to pay attention to more important things. You've heard the old saying, no one on their deathbed cries out, I wish I'd spent more time in the office making more money. That's why Proverbs 11.4 read like this, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. The day of wrath is judgment day. Wealth blinds you to judgment day questions. Like what is the meaning of my life? Who am I really living for? God? My neighbor? Myself? What am I becoming? What contribution am I making? Wealth sucks you into a frantic cycle that goes like this. I've earned more, so I'm going to spend more. But now that I'm spending more, I need to earn more. And all the time you feel strapped and stressed instead of satisfied and blessed. That's why Jesus said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word of God and it becomes unfruitful. And you know what the most deceitful thing about riches is? Even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. We're all in denial about how much control money has over our lives. And again, the truth about us is we don't know what the truth about us is. So Agor recognizes the deceitful nature of riches, and he prays, keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then he talks about the true needs we have when it comes to wealth. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Agor's words ring with a rare contentment and desire for a modest, simple lifestyle, for sure. He'd rather not have to stand in a soup line at the local mission. He makes no secret about that. But neither does he demand a standing reservation at Ruth's Chris. He says, give me my daily bread, not my daily filet mignon. <laughs> Why? Agur feared increased resources would lead him to becoming less dependent on God. The good things in life might cause him to drift away and put his trust in riches which we've already been warned about throughout the book of Proverbs, particularly in this picturesque Proverbs from chapter 33 or chapter 23. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. But he also feared not having enough and then questioning God's goodness, resorting to favory just to feed his family. Listen to me. Money can corrupt us not only by its presence, but by its absence. The poor can be tempted to a life of crime as a means for income. They're often excluded for multiple reasons from benefiting from the economy. And in their hearts, there can arise a self-justification for illegal and even violent action. And that's not right. So Agur makes a rare request. He prays, Lord, meet my material needs and give me resources, yes, but only as much as I can handle without it harming my ability to put you first in my life. Because here's, here's what Agor knew. Ultimately, I don't need status. I don't need comfort. Lord, I need you. Listen to me. Poverty glorifies no one. No one. Prosperity falsifies its claims to everyone. Contentment in Christ satisfies anyone who learns to trust in him. That's why Paul, one of the greatest followers of Jesus ever wrote, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Everybody at Apopka Lake County online, would you read that last phrase out loud with me? Let's read it out loud together. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friends, the secret to contentment in any circumstance is total trust in Christ. The secret to contentment in any circumstance is total trust in Christ. Are you a humble, lifelong learner? Do you have a sober view of yourself, realistic view of yourself? Do you have an exalted view of God? Do you have a trustworthy view of God's Word? Do you have a prayerful voice of contentment in Christ? It's what we're offered when we follow him. Stand with me right now. Apopka, Lake County, stand. Father, I pray that this would be true of us, that we would be humble, lifelong learners. That you would help us to understand these wise words of this obscure seldom talked about man Agur help us to understand and as we come to the Holy One we are lost we're undone and we recognize our sinfulness and yet through your words and through the person of Jesus, you tell us we're loved. Yes, it's true that we're more sinful than we even think we are. But we're more loved than we dared imagine to think. And we thank you for that love that covers a multitude of sins. Father, thank you that we follow Jesus. And through him, we can do anything. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.